So, Holy God, your word, whether written or spoken, is grace to us. And God, I pray that this worship, that this time we have together would be like coming to a gas station of grace. Fill us up. Send us out from this place to give the grace you have given us to others. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be worthy in your sight, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. When I was in elementary school, I loved vending machines. I used to spend my summers at a local swimming pool, and one of my favorite things to do was to hoard my allowance so that I could go to the pool and get a Coke or some treat that uh, I could eat or enjoy on the way home from the pool. And at the time, I treated them like they were these magical dispensaries that held all the unhealthy treats and snacks that my mother refused to buy for us at home. And so as long as I had money and I was able to put it in and I could push the button, they spit out whatever it was that I wanted. Well, most times. I'm sure all of you, like me, have some story of vending machine injustice <laughs> where, you know, you can't, just, you can't wiggle it enough to get them to release your Funyuns or it doesn't give you change or it's just how it works. And in doing some research for this, I was looking up, you know, did anyone, did anyone do any odd things with vending machines? And I actually found that there are a number of cases where people have died trying to get what they want out of a vending machine. Because it's generally fallen on them, it's tipped over, they've gotten their arms stuck. Anyway, in fact, I found out that more people get killed each year from a vending machine than they do in a wolf attack. <laughs> I know, you think going to the pool or going to the national park, which is more dangerous. The number of people who were killed last year in a vending machine, by a vending machine, four. Number of people in a wolf attack, zero, okay? <laughs> so all I'm saying is next time you're just staring at that pack of Smarties or that chip, the bag of Doritos, you're like, I have to have this. I just want you to think that the vending machine might win in the end. <laughs> anyway, my problem with, as a child of loving the vending machine was that it, I began to expect other things in life to function the same way. I loved the simplicity of depositing what was expected, pushing a button, and getting what I wanted in return. And my mother has told me that there were a number of times where I would come up to her and tell her that because I'd cleaned my room or I'd done another chore, that I deserved something. And I was living under this notion that if I did what was expected, that I should be able to get whatever I wanted. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that we can easily extend it to our relationships with other people and with God. Instead of looking at relationships where God or the other person is loved and honored, we begin to approach them seeking only to love and honor ourselves. And this is a problem because good, healthy, God-honoring relationships aren't based on the idea that it's about me or that I should always get what I want. So as you may know, we've been doing this sermon series called Factory Reset. And the way we've been kind of thinking about this and approaching it is that sometimes our lives need a reset. Sort of like how our computers or our smartphones can get just gunked up or all out of whack with too many apps or you downloaded a virus or you erased your cookies, whatever it is, sometimes you need to just stop and give it a reset and start over. 
And I think sometimes it's the same way with us in our lives. Because of our culture or or the fact that we're fallen, there are a variety of ways that we get messed up and we just need a reset from our maker. And I would submit today that our way we approach relationships needs a reset. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I don't think I'm alone here. I don't think I'm the only person that begins to approach life and my relationship sometimes through the lens of what's in it for me. And the problem here is if we're created in the image of God, if we are all people who God loves, then I don't get to take advantage of you to get what I want. But there are times, because of our culture, because we're fallen, that we forget this and we begin to only think of ourselves. And so it's in those moments that I think we need to reset our approach to relationships and, how, and, and, and begin to ask, how is it that God is calling me to approach these relationships? And how is God in relationships with me? And my hope is that by looking at God's word and the story of his interactions with us, that we would begin to see how God loves and honors us and is calling us to do the same for each other instead of treating people like a vending machine. Now, in the Bible, we see God modeling a pattern of relationships. He makes promises, and he forms agreements with us. Time and time again, he initiates with us and invites us into a new way of living. And when he does this, it's called a covenant. Now, there are three parts to a covenant. There's generally two parties. There's a promise given, and there's a sign for that covenant. In the Old Testament, we have four major covenants that God makes with humanity. The first is God's covenant with Noah, that he would never flood the world again. Then we have God's covenant with Abraham, where God promised that Abraham and his descendants would be a great nation and a blessing to the earth. Then we have God's covenant with Moses, where, he promised, where God promised that he would be our God and that we would be God's people. And then we come to God's covenant with David, where he promised that from David's line, the Messiah would come. And I think it's interesting as we look at this that we can almost go from creation to Jesus with these covenants. That in some ways, we begin to see a pattern emerging here that these covenants are an outline for how we read and understand the Old Testament. And what's more is I think they give us a picture of how God makes and keeps relationships with his people. And I want to look more closely at one of these covenants. In our scripture, we read that it refers to the covenant that God made with Moses and with all of Israel. And I think it's helpful to unpack that one. First, the two parties involved here are God and Moses on behalf of Israel. The promise that God would be our God and that we would be God's people. The sign is the Sabbath day. And next, we see that with covenants, God always holds up his end. Even when we don't hold up ours, God always shows up. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a book that I read last summer. It was called Same Kind of Different as Me. And the story is true, but as I was reading it, I just felt like it could have been fiction because it was such a fantastic story. And it's told in two voices. The book alternates between the authors as they tell their story from their perspective. And their names are Ron Hall and Denver Moore. Now, Ron is this wealthy international art dealer who travels the world buying and selling expensive art. And he's grown rich, but he's also become distant and selfish from his, he's become selfish and distant from his family. 
And when Ron reluctantly volunteers at a homeless shelter because his wife drug him there, he soon comes into contact with a man named Denver, a man that his wife is convinced is going to change the city of Fort Worth. Now, Denver grew up as a sharecropper in Louisiana, and sharecropper is a nice way to say modern-day slave. He lived a life that seemed very little different from the lives that his ancestors lived hundreds of years before. And he eventually walked away from the cotton fields and found that while life on the streets of Fort Worth was difficult, that it was still better than being a sharecropper. And it was there that these two homeless men met, one serving food and the other one being a reluctant recipient of this charity. And at first, Ron is just unable to crack Denver's stony exterior. But eventually, Ron is able to, to prevail, and they strike up this friendship. And I want to share with you how these two became friends over a cup of coffee. As they sat in a diner, Denver looked at Ron and said, I heard that when white folks go fishing, they do something called catch and release. And as Ron heard this, he wondered, what does catch and release mean? And he nodded solemnly and became really nervous and curious at the same time. That really bothers me, said Denver, because I just can't figure it out. Because when colored folks go fishing, we're really proud of what we catch. And we take it and we show it off to everyone that will look. Then we eat what we catch. In other words, we use it to sustain us. And so it really bothers me when white folks go through all the trouble to catch fish, and then when they've caught it, they just throw it back in the water. He paused again, and the silence between them seemed to feel like an eternity to Ron. Then Denver looked at him and said, Did you hear what I said? Ron nodded, afraid to speak, afraid to offend. Denver looked away at the blue autumn sky, and then he locked on to Ron with this drill bit-like stare and said, So, Mr. Ron, it occurred to me, if you're just going to play catch and release, then I don't want to be your friend. Ron returned Denver's gaze with what he hoped was this receptive and open expression, and he hung on. Suddenly, Denver's eyes grew gentle, and he spoke more softly before and he said, but if you're looking for a real friend, then I'll be yours forever. I love that story. I love that story because it reminds me of how God relates to us. I don't know about you, but I've been in relationships where I've felt like someone has played catch and release. I know that I have played catch and release with other people. And what I love is that even when we do that with God, he never releases us. God doesn't play catch and release. Once he catches us, he holds on forever. God never walks away. He always shows up, even when we don't hold up our promises. So our scripture for today points to this notion that God always sticks around and that he never gives up. Here, the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who is foretelling that one day there would be this new covenant that would replace the one given through Moses. And this is because the old covenants that God gave, he was giving us a way to be in relationship with him, and he was really trying to prepare a way for us to fully be in relationship and to restore and to redeem us to our intended purpose. 
And while these old covenants were very good and very necessary, they were almost a band-aid while God was remedying the cure that we really needed. And I think an important thing to note here is that these covenants were mediated by the priests and the sacrifices that they performed. And they were made only with the Israelites, God's chosen people. And with that in mind, the writer is saying, in effect, that because of this new covenant with Jesus, it's better. We have something better because it's final, it's permanent, and it's once and for all. And it's secured by Jesus, not by the actions of some priest, not by some sacrifices, and that this one is for everyone. The writer is trying to make clear here to people that while what we had in the old covenants was good, in Jesus, God is doing something better. That the band-aid was helpful for a time, but now we need to take hold of the cure. And Jesus meant that people would understand that this new covenant would supersede the ones made previously, in part because the parties had expanded from the nation of Israel to the whole of humanity, but also because what Jesus offered in this new covenant was what all of the other ones were pointing to. What I mean is that when Jesus became flesh, when he lived among us, when he died for us, he did what the other covenants were unable to do. He provided a way for God to enter into a full and right relationship with us. And as we look to the New Testament, we see that when Jesus comes, God is still continuing to fish for us. He's still continuing to pursue us in the form of his son. And in Jesus, God has offered you, me, all of humanity, a new covenant. And the promises made in this covenant are the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, meaning that God gives to life, as well as God's blessing and God's guidance. And the sign here is baptism in the name of the triune God. This is huge. Because while in the old covenants, we could count on that God would pursue us, that he would protect us, that he would love us, in this new covenant, we get all of those things and so much more. And as I say this, I'm reminded of the story of Ron and Denver again. See, before they met each other, both had resigned themselves to the lives they had. They thought, this is what it's going to be, and I'm just going to stick with this. Denver was going to be homeless. He had a good thing working out with the shelter. Ron was selling art. His, wife, his life with his wife wasn't that great, but they were making it work. But because of this dream that Debbie, Ron's wife, had that they needed to be serving at this mission and that they were going to meet this man that was going to change the city, both Ron and Denver's lives changed forever. They became fast friends who endured together the tragedy of Debbie's battle with cancer and her ultimate death. And as they do this, they grow in their love and respect for one another. We find that each man teaches the other about life and about faith. And when I read the story of the relationship of these two men, I find it fascinating and inspiring because I think it offers into a glimpse of two worlds that are so opposite and what happens when they come into contact with each other because of God. After Debbie's memorial service, Denver said to Ron, you were the only person who looked past my skin, past my meanness, 
and saw that there was somebody inside me worth saving. We all have more in common than we think. You stood up with courage and you faced me when I was dangerous and it changed my life. You loved me for who I was on the inside, the person that God meant for me to be, the one that had just gotten lost for a while on some ugly roads in life. We see that when God is a part of relationships, when they become more than a vending machine or some kind of catch and release game, that they can have a powerful and deep effect on us. Because here's the deal. God is calling us, you, me, all of us, to be covenant people. People who, because of Jesus, keep the covenant to love God and love people. The two greatest commandments Jesus gives us are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes to say, all the laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. But this is a huge challenge because I have moments in my life where I don't want to care about you. <laughs> Sorry. I have moments where I don't want to sit and think, how do you feel? How is this affecting you? What is this like for you? There are moments where I just want what I want when I want it, and when I'm done, I want to move on. Point fingers at myself here. You can decide if you're like that too. But God has another way. God has a better way to be in relationships, and he wants to reset our way of thinking about them. God wants us to pay attention to how he relates to us and then have us do the same with others. And when we look at the Bible, we see that covenant displays the best of what it means to be in relationship with God and with others. Because to be in a God-honoring relationship means that they're defined by truth-telling, honesty, community with commitment, intimacy, vulnerability, preferring the other above yourself honor, and accountability. We find that within this concept of covenant and the relationships that flow from it come a deep, abiding respect for another that seeks to honor and love them for who they are. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I was reflecting with Kendi and trying to just talk about this, and she reminded me that we recently had an opportunity as a church, to be a covenant community for one of our own. Many of you may have known Matthew Vanderaa. He was a deacon in this church. He was someone who was active in every corner and pocket that you could imagine in this community. Someone also said that more than that, he was a guy who always greeted friends and strangers alike with a big smile and a firm handshake. And that when Matt asked you how you were doing, he listened carefully to your answer. They said that Matt cared deeply about the people of Belle Prez. Sadly, in early January, Matt collapsed at work. When he was found, he was unconscious and the paramedics were called. And when the paramedics arrived on the scene, they started caring for him and immediately tried to contact his next of kin. And as they looked for points of contact, all they could find was his deacon card in his wallet with the church's name on it. 
So they called the church, not having anything else to work with, and they asked if we could help, if we knew him, and if we could help contact his family. And when they said he was a deacon, they immediately transferred the paramedics to Dana, and she started to talk with them and get details. And at the same time, Kathy, our receptionist, started scouring the internet, looking for any possible address, phone number, something that may help us find out who his parents were and how to get in touch with him. After finding what we thought might be the right number, Dana called and was able to speak with his mother and let her know what had happened. Meanwhile, as Dana is calling the family, Rosalind heard and jumps in her car because Matt was a part of her singles ministry. She drives to the hospital to be with him. At the same time, word began to spread around the church, to his alpha group, to his usher team, to the communion servers he served with, to the nominating committee he was on, to the singles group, to the young adult softball team. And when the young adult softball team found out, a group of them dropped what they're doing, and they went with Rich to the hospital and sat with him. And they prayed for him as the doctors worked to revive him. And when they were told there was nothing left to do, these people said, we believe in a big God. And so they prayed for a miracle. They prayed for his family, and they prayed that somehow God would make sense of this. And when they realized that there was nothing left to do, they left a softball on his pillow so that his family would know that he wasn't alone as he fought to live. And as it grew late, the team went home, but Rich stayed to be with the family when they, were, when they arrived. And Rich was with the family, and he prayed with them as Matt died. And Rich sat with them as the reality of Matt's death sunk in and the searing pain of loss entered their lives. But it didn't stop there. Word continued to spread. And in the following days, we received call after call after call of people expressing shock, wanting to know, what can I do? Even after Matt has left our midst, this church continues to surround his family and care for them as they mourn. And we will can still continue to do that as we prepare to celebrate his life and witness to the resurrection on February 11th here in this church. We will miss Matt. But the story of Matt's life and how he was cared for by this church in his death speaks to the kind of relationships God calls us to. Now I want to pause here. We can't use Matt's death as a punchline. But we can honor Matt by looking at the life that he lived and how he honored God and seek to understand how we can learn something from that. Because Matt sought to love, honor, and serve others despite who they were. He sought to move past this community as some kind of vending machine, some place to come and get where he wanted and leave. The night before he died, he sat with us in the upper campus. He prayed about the houses that we were going to open for Eastside Academy students. The week before he died, he prayed with our nominating committee about who should lead in this church. Matt lived a life of faith and devotion that demonstrated the kind of relationships God calls us to. And in his passing, this church mobilized to be a covenant community. We were able to live into who God's called us to be because people sprang into action. They called, they went, they prayed. They put themselves and their lives, their jobs, their responsibilities on hold 
because they knew they needed to be with someone they loved and cared for. They demonstrated that this is a community that plays catch and hold, not catch and release. And they did this because in many respects, Matt taught them how to do this. His life was a lesson and it changed these people and who they were. When we take this all in, we realize that the, the way God calls us to be in relationships is different. The way God does relationships is different. God loves. God honors. God is always there. And as we observe how God interacts with us, he teaches us how we're called to be in relationships with other people. God teaches us that he never leaves us, that he catches and never lets go, and that we can do the same thing in the varying ways we go about our lives. I want you to stop and imagine, what would your life be like if you were never treated like a vending machine anymore? What would it be like if you, were never, if you never felt like someone played catch and release? What would it be like if you did the same for other people? All of this because of who God is and who he's calling you to be, me to be, us to be. We need a reset here. We need to walk away from the tempting voice that says it's all about me. We need to seek and love and honor each other. May this be so in your life. Amen.